Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. Hey, Tracy. Yeah. We work on a podcast. We do. We also listen to podcasts. We sure do. <laughs> and uh, one thing that's going on this March is that podcasts in general are all trying to get people interested in podcasting as a general thing. So hmm. uh, all this month, we are asking you to tell somebody that you love about a podcast you think they'll love. That doesn't have to be our podcast. Um, I love my big podcast love right now is How to Be Amazing with Michael Ian Black. I have said it amongst friends. I will say it here. I think he is the best interviewer in any medium right now. Awesome. He's amazing. And I'm sure that there is someone out there that you know or love, like, or your best friend or someone in your family that you think, oh, this podcast would be perfect for them. Something like How to Be Amazing or some other podcast and recommend it. Uh, so go tell them about these things uh, because everybody should be listening to podcasts. It's a medium that is has something truly for everyone. And we want you to also share with us in the world what you recommended to that friend by posting on social media and using the hashtag tripod, which is T-R-Y-P-O-D. So spread the word about some podcasts. Uh, it will only make us all smarter and more interested in the world. So thanks for that. And now we're going to hop into our topic for today, which is another question to Tracy. Tracy, you have heard of Cotard's delusion or Cotard's syndrome before, right? Mm-hmm. And usually, probably if you've seen it, it comes up on uh, frequently online on like lists of you know, world's strangest maladies or, or, uh, you know, lists of, of sort of disturbing or unsettling mental disorders. Because in those lists, it's usually just characterized as a patient believing themselves to be deceased. It is sometimes called walking corpse syndrome because of that. And while that can certainly be part of it, it is a lot more complex than that. So Cotard syndrome is quite rare. It involves both a negation delusion. So the individual feels a major change in their body or they deny the existence of one or several parts of their organs or bodies. Like they will sometimes think that they no longer have viscera or that their blood is gone or some other variation on that theme. And it also has a nihilistic delusion element. So in that in that part of it, the individual also believes that they or are, all people are dead, that they are somehow comporting themselves around the earth in a state of non-livingness. Uh, so it is. It's very complex. And additionally, the work of Jules Cotard is much debated even today. And part of that is because it was unfinished, which we're going to talk about. So really, the story of this syndrome that's named for him in many ways is the story of psychiatry and how ideas are challenged and then shift and change through interpretation as well as accumulation of data through the passage of time. So we're going to talk about Jules Cotard, his work in this area, and then sort of how things played out later on in terms of using his work to address issues patients were having. Jules Cotard was born on June 1st, 1840, in Istudon in central France. As a young man, he became a medical student in Paris, where he studied under several prominent and trailblazing physicians of the day. These included Pierre-Paul Broca, who has a portion of the frontal lobe in the brain named after him because of his work studying that area and then also establishing the concept of brain function being associated with specific areas. 
There's also Alfred Vulpian, who is credited with the discovery of adrenaline being made by the adrenal gland. And Jean-Martin Charcot, who's considered the father of modern neurology and has more than a dozen medical conditions or discoveries named for him. In short, uh, that's kind of an incredible time to be studying medicine in Paris. It really was. Uh, there was also a lot going on, of course, in Vienna and Germany at the time. But Paris had some really interesting neurological and psychiatric culture growing up around it. So initially, Cotard was on the same path as the neurologist that he had been studying under. His first significant paper was titled Physiological and Pathological Studies on Cerebral Softening, Exploring How Inflammation and Hemorrhaging Damages Brain Tissue. And then his doctorate paper in 1868 was titled Study on Partial Atrophy of the Brain. One event, though, would really significantly change the course of Cotard's career. He witnessed the psychiatrist Charles Lessig interviewing a patient, and he was enthralled. Based on watching this man at work, uh, Cotard began to shift his focus away from neurology and into psychiatry. The two men would eventually become colleagues. And I, I feel like we should say that this was... It was not uncommon for people going into psychiatry at this time to have started out in neurology. A lot of people did. In 1874, Le Segue introduced Jules Cotard to Jules Faure. And the two Juleses would go on to become research partners, working side by side in the Maison de Santé, that's the asylum, at Vanves in Paris, uh, in the southwestern suburbs. And incidentally, Faure's father actually owned that asylum. Cotard gave a presentation to Paris's Medical Psychological Society on June 28, 1880. He read a case report he and Fauret had assembled titled Of the Hypochondriac Delirium and a Severe Form of Anxious Melancholy. In this case, the patient was a woman who was 43 and she had a unique set of symptoms. So this woman, who is referred to in the paper as Madame X, thought that she was made of nothing but skin and bone, and that she had no brain, nerves, chest, or entrails. Additionally, she had come to the conclusion that God did not exist, nor did the devil, and that she would live forever. She had made several attempts on her own life, and requested of her doctors and others that she be burned alive. As Cotard presented... He referenced similar cases that had been on the record going as far back as 20 years. He specifically mentioned similar cases handled by Dr. Jules Bayarget as some of the oldest. These were considered part of a diagnosis of general paralysis. And in this context, the paralysis referred to is a failure of the brain characterized by a loss of inhibitions and the exhibition of delusional thinking. So not a lack of physical movement or an inability to move your body. Right. When we think of paralysis, that's usually what comes to mind, but that's not the application of the word here. So, yeah, this these similar um, cases that had been studied two decades earlier, had kind of gotten lumped in as general paralysis. But Cotard felt like there was something a little more specific about them. And he thought that what his patient was exhibiting was actually a form of what was at the time called lipomania or lipomania. And that term eventually was supplanted by melancholy. Basically, he thought he had identified a specific form of melancholia. And this was, in his opinion, an anxious melancholia with delusions that could include religious misbeliefs of damnation or demon possession, the perception that some or all of the body had ceased to exist, 
inability to perceive physical pain, immortality delusions, and suicidal behavior. Jules Cotard also drew possible connections in this presentation from the symptoms he had observed in the patient to similar historical events, including various cases of reported demon obsession. He suggested that the idea of the wandering Jew legend, which was a man who had taunted Christ on the cross and then was doomed to wander earth until the world ended, he uh, thought that may have had roots in the observation of a person with a similarly delusional state. Yeah, he was kind of making this case that it could be that that whole legend grew out of someone speaking with a person who actually had this delusion that he was trying to identify And Cotard continued to develop his research on this topic. Uh, In 1882, he expanded on it by introducing the term délire de négations, and that's nihilistic delusions, uh, in an article that he published in the Archives de Neurologie. Patients with such delusions, he said, had a tendency to deny everything, leading in extreme cases to denial of the self. He separated the delusions of negation clinically from delusions of persecution in that article. He characterized persecution delusions as exhibiting mistrust, paranoia of poisoning, delusions of grandeur, and acoustic verbal hallucinations that would sometimes be homicidal. In contrast, he listed anxious monologue, deep melancholic depression, refusal to eat, visual hallucinations, and suicidal behavior as characteristics of the delusion of negation. Four years after Qatar's initial presentation on the symptoms of Madame X, he wrote about another patient, this one an adult man, who said that he could no longer see his children's features. In 1884, Qatar, still trying to build up a unified theory of what he believed to be related symptoms, came to the conclusion that this was a loss of mental vision and that this was actually the root of the problem when patients exhibited nihilistic delusions. The mind, in his estimation, was simply unable to process visual representation of objects. He would later refine this concept by describing the problem as a loss of, quote, psychomotor energy, causing the patient to lose visual representation and to experience psychomotor impairment. It's entirely likely that Cotard would have continued to refine his work on the topic had he not met an untimely end. In 1889, at just 49 years old, he he contracted diphtheria, which he caught from his daughter. He never recovered, and he died on August 19th of that year. At his funeral, his partner, Faure, spoke, calling him, quote, a profound and original thinker, given to paradox, but guided by a robust sense of reality. And next up, we're going to talk about what the rest of Paris's psychiatric community did with Qatar's work after his death. But first, we're going to pause and have a word from one of our sponsors. Almost immediately after Jules Qatar's death, debate began about his work and where he had been headed with it and what his intentions actually were. One of the ongoing themes of Qatar's work was this struggle to develop terminology for psychiatric ailments. And he had also championed this idea of using symptomatic classification for psychiatry. So, of course, with his work in this state of arrested development, I mean, he had been writing updates to his ideas just days before his death. There was a lot of room for interpretation. While some of his contemporaries thought he had been cataloging an entirely new disease, 
Others thought his work had always been focused on exploring a severe and specific form of melancholia. Others thought that he merely sought to catalog and describe a symptom cluster that could be found in other diseases in addition to melancholia. In August of 1892, the issue was hotly debated at the Mental Medicine Congress in Blois, France. Cotard's partner, Falcoy, advocated for the idea that his friend had identified a new disease. And to argue his case, he claimed that there was an essential form of Cotard's délire de négation, which stood on its own, and also an, a secondary form of it that could be part of other uh, melancholia and even non-melancholia disorders. Others in attendance argued that the specific cluster that Faure was advocating as part of Cotard's newly identified disorder included elements that were so rare, specifically those relating to religion-based concepts of demonic possession, damnation, and eternal life, that there was no validity to calling it its own singular syndrome. To support this view, it was pointed out that virtually all patients with melancholia had a tendency toward negation and guilt, so the cases in Cotard's writings were just extreme examples of this. Additional arguments against this being a standalone disorder or disease identification included claims that Cotard was m- merely listing a random assortment of symptoms that could be found in any number of mental disorders. So grouping them together was essentially meaningless aside from any one specific patient having them. Cases were also brought into the discussion to illustrate the rather common occurrence of nihilistic delusions in cases of chronic melancholia. While the Mental Health Congress came to no clear conclusion as to whether Cotard's work was describing a specific syndrome or common elements of multiple mental disorders, there was some agreement on how to define nihilistic delusion syndrome. And that was that it included two specific elements, anxious melancholia and systematized ideas of negation. So as an aside to clarify what that means, uh, systematized delusion indicates that a patient has developed a consistent, complex system of beliefs associated with their condition, which often fit together perfectly in a really elaborate narrative. So, for example, if you think that you died in an accident where you did not die, all of the strange things that may happen to you, you will put together into a puzzle to support that conclusion. Like, I'm clearly dead. That is why that person never calls me back. It's because I'm dead and they're not getting my call. That's a very simplified and and basic way. And I'm sure any doctor would be like, Holly, no. Uh, but, <laughs> but that's just to kind of give you an idea of what this systematized aspect of it means. One year after that Congress and four years after Cotard's death, the term Cotard syndrome was first introduced. That was in 1893 by Emile Regis to name the depressive disorder that Cotard had studied and described. It then became cemented in the lexicon through its use by another of Cotard's contemporaries, who was psychiatrist Jules Seglat. although there were some differences in how Seglat and Cotard viewed this condition. While many believed that Cotard's work had led him to the conclusion that nihilistic delusion was a separate and unique condition, Seglat felt that it was an expression of an extreme state of anxious melancholia. 
So the case in which Segla first used the term Cotard syndrome to describe a patient featured a man who, much like Cotard's patient Madame X, believed himself to be immortal, damned, and without his internal organs. And despite his different view of whether the syndrome was a, a unique disorder or a way to identify extreme cases, Segla's diagnosis of a patient as having Cotard syndrome really popularized the term's usage. With the dawn of the 20th century came many changes in the way mental health was discussed and treated. And Cotard's work had to be examined in new ways as a consequence. So first, you probably noted that leading up to this point, we exclusively use the term melancholia. That's because depression and manic depressive illness as diagnostic terms didn't exist until the 20th century. And those have continued to be refined. Now people generally say bipolar disorder and not manic depressive illness. Once they were introduced, though, these terms really impacted a lot of disorders and illnesses, including Cotard syndrome. So in the early 1900s, Cotard syndrome was invoked as a symptomatic analysis of patients who were being treated for general paralysis and senile dementia, uh, as it had been toward the end of the 19th century, been used in both of those. But now it was also associated with the newer terms, depression and at that point, manic depressive illness. And so this wider range of use also came with the development of a subdivision of the syndrome by some doctors into two types, the melancholic type of Cotard syndrome and the hypochondriacal type of Cotard syndrome. The melancholic type was considered secondary in a patient with affective disorder. That's a mood disorder such as depression, bipolar disorder, or anxiety disorder, characterized by nihilistic delusions and the patient's subjectivity. The hypochondriacal type was considered a primary manifestation of the syndrome where the patient's symptoms were focused around incorrect and paranoid feelings about the body, like that it was missing viscera or that it was no longer alive. And again, we should make clear that this was not a universally accepted approach to to dividing this. Uh, in 1904, Leonardo Bianchi and James Hogg MacDonald wrote a textbook of psychiatry for physicians and students. And in it, they wrote, quote, Cotard and others have assigned undue importance to the delirium of negation, attributing to it certain clinical characters, many of which, as a matter of fact, are common to the majority of cases of depressive delirium, such as self-accusation and hypochondria, of which it represents a more advanced stage of evolution. It was, just as a decade earlier, a time when some of the medical mental health community believed that Cotard had wrongly associated a series of fairly common symptoms into one unique cluster. Another idea developed during this period was a way to identify nihilistic delusions as true Cotard syndrome. This particular approach required that a patient exhibit a combination of an affective or mood component, like anxiety, and an intellectual component, which is the idea of negation. This approach meant that these delusions could be recognized and acknowledged in a variety of scenarios without the identification of Cotard syndrome. And to make things even more nebulous, some physicians also suggested breaking down the syndrome into complete and incomplete versions based on variations in the patient's symptoms. This is one of those things where the more I read, the more I was like, how do any doctors or clinicians ever agree on anything? <laughs> because, 
<laughs> because it, it is so hotly debated, and I know this isn't just unique to Cotard syndrome. Uh, yet others suggested that Cotard syndrome is really a result of institutionalization. And in fact, that first patient that Cotard described back in 1880 was a woman who had been confined at the Van Vis Asylum for a number of years. So to wrap things up, we're going to talk a bit about the discussion and handling of Cotard syndrome after World War II. But first, we're going to take one last quick break for a word from a sponsor. During World War II, Paris was, of course, occupied by the Nazis. And so work on psychiatry there certainly slowed. But after the war, Cotard's work was once again examined. And in some ways, history repeated itself as various clinicians offered their interpretations based on their work with patients that had similar or related symptoms. In the book Uncommon Psychiatric Syndromes, writers Morgan Enoch and William Trithowen wrote, it is, quote, justifiable to regard Cotard syndrome as a specific clinical entity because it may exist in a pure and complete form, even when symptomatic of another mental illness. Nihilistic delusions dominate the clinical picture. And today, of course classification of mental disorders continues to be debated. And in the 1880s, many of the concepts that were being introduced were in their infancy, so things were constantly in flux. There was ongoing debate about what various disorders should be called and even how to arrange the known disorders into a larger classification system. Because the very juvenile stage of many of the concepts that Cotard was writing about and the fact that he was writing in French... There have been additional debates through the years about the interpretations of his work and how translation has affected it. For example, in a paper written in 1995 by G.E. Berrios and R. Luc, there is some discussion about the use of the French word délire, which has more complex and nuanced meaning than its usual translation to delirium or delusion. The two writers of that paper explain that the word is more inclusive than that and can be used to describe a syndrome with lots of different symptoms, not just delusions. And this syndrome now has three distinct developmental stages recognized within it uh, in the, the work of some doctors. The germination stage is characterized by depression and often a fear or worry about illness. And in the second stage, called the blooming stage, patients exhibit anxiety and negativism and the delusions of death and immortality appear. This is what most people are describing if you ever read like a very quick blurb about what Cotard's is. Uh, and then the third chronic stage of Cotard syndrome manifests in severe depression. Cotard syndrome is not listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or in the International Classification of Diseases as an independent disorder. Instead, it is listed as a nihilistic delusion, which is an affective delusion within a depressive episode with psychotic features. And Cotard syndrome can be treated uh, with antidepressants, antipsychotics, and mood stabilizers, uh, either by themselves or in some combination, depending on the tests that have been run and what uh, the doctor and and patient determined to be the best course of action. Sometimes uh, the still controversial electroconvulsive therapy is also used. That is very different than it used to be, FYI. Uh, the greatest risks in terms of the syndrome today, when speaking about potential mortality, are starvation in patients that refuse to eat or suicide. So patients undergoing treatment do have to be watched very carefully. But there is treatment, and there are many cases of people who come out of this and uh, treat it and no longer have it. So that's Cotard syndrome. 
Which fascinates me. Yeah. Do you also have some listener mail? I do, and it's not about psychiatric weirdness at all. Um, This is from our listener, whose name is uh, Ginevra. I hope I am pronouncing that correctly. She says, hi, guys. I love your show. I'm an illustrator and love listening to it when I'm working. I made a hardcore Heroines of History cards series last year. A few of the women I had heard of because of your show and the others I found through research. I recently saw that you did an episode on Edmonia Lewis, and I was so excited since I found her last year and was blown away by what she accomplished in her lifetime. Also, here is the archaeology badger that came to mind from the Unearthed episode. I laughed so hard and loved your tagline. At any rate, here is a pack of cards for fun. I've included my artist animal pun series, since I know cats and art are also a love of uh, one of yours. Thanks for being super stellar, Ginevra. And she also writes, P.S. This is my first fan mail I've ever sent. Of course, a history podcast moved me to embarrass myself. I love it. And I love the shows. These are the cutest things. So now I will describe these adorable cards, which she has sent, and I'll have to take pictures and share them. So one is a hardcore history of heroines. No, hardcore heroines of history that you've probably never heard of. And basically she has incorporated animals into these portraits. So for example, there is um Caroline Herschel that we did an episode on uh, as a bird. And she's lovely. Uh, Sojourner Truth uh, is, uh, I think that is a ferret, but I'm not 100% certain. They're all very, very adorable. And this new pack, which includes artists, has some of the best things ever, including Marcel Duchimp, Mark Chagall, Leonardo da Vinci, and Beatrix Otter. Um, <laughs> take pictures of these and share them because they are so cute. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Ginevra. These are just the most darling things I have maybe ever seen. I love them. Uh, If you would like to write to us, you could do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. That means we're on Twitter as at Missed in History, at facebook.com slash Missed in History, on Instagram as at Missed in History, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. If you would like to research uh, a little bit on your own, you can go to our parent site, House Stuff Works. You could type in uh, psychiatry and find a wealth of information and interesting articles to keep you occupied. You can also visit me and Tracy at mistinhistory.com where we have every episode of the show that has ever existed as well as show notes for every episode that Tracy and I have worked on together in the last four years. Uh, so we encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 